Welcome to the Buddha Sasana podcast. This talk was given by Bhikkhu Chintita in Chisago City, Minnesota. We are continuing to talk about the self, as in self-help, contrasting the Buddhist concept of self with our modern understanding of self. We see that the Buddhist understanding of self admits three levels which we have called the concept self, the thing self, and the ego self. For the Buddhist, all three are cognitive constructs. Let's focus on the first two for a bit. The Buddhist idea of non-self is widely considered to be difficult to grasp. Instead, we're convinced that there is a thing self. So let me offer an analogy. A nation Estonia, Indonesia, Thailand, the USA, etc., also seems to be a thing. After all, it has an economy, it has defined borders, and a territorial landscape. It can print money, go to war, tax imports, and citizens. It has a population within its borders. If the nation were a body, the economy would be the breath. The borders that define the territory, its posture, printing money, declaring war, etc., its bodily actions, its regional governments and national governing bodies, its organs, its population, its elements. Nonetheless, the nation does not inhere in these things alone. A nation comes into existence only because there is first a concept of a nation, Quisylvania. Before that, there is a coincidence of people, landscape, trade, and so on, and maybe some observable patterns among these, but no Quisylvania. Once we have the concept, we reify the concept into a thing that exists such that there are Quisylvanian borders and Quisylvanian people and so on. Then we are free to create additional things like Quisylvanian currency and laws in relation to the thing nation we have created. The point is that the concept precedes the thing, not the other way around, which is to say the thing does not have existence from its own side that is objectively or independent of human conceptualization or cognition. This is also what it means to say that Quisylvania is empty of self-existence, or just plain empty. We can experience its emptiness when we focus our attention on what should be an intrinsic part of a nation we have reified. For instance, if we go deep into the wilderness of Quisylvania and arrive at its border with Bumbleland, we expect the ground beneath our feet to become blue or something. Instead, we find a pole in the ground 
with a self-important sign that says, International Border Crossing into the Duchy of Fumbleland. We wonder, that's it? A sign in the ground? It isn't even firmly grounded. So we try to shore it up a bit with our foot. We then realize how artificial Quizzlevania really is and how we've reified it beyond the reality of the situation. And this reification has caused us to expect something a little bit more substantial than a sign sticking in the ground. Quizzlevania is a cognitive construct. So is the self. Why do we care about this as Buddhists? Because when we presume the substantial existence of something, we become really stupid. Bumbleland, like Quizzlevania, is made up. But that does not stop us from blaming it for such and such, needing to bomb Quizzleland and for Quizzleland to bomb Bumbleland in retaliation, each for being an access of evil, as if countries were substantial things with human-like qualities like agency, blame, good and evil intentions, and not something just made up. Meanwhile, it's, it's people, not the made-up nation, who are really being bombed. We might also take note of the human tendency to ground reified things more thoroughly in reality, perhaps to hide the points of difference between myth and reality. There is something disconcerting about running across a sign arbitrarily in the wilderness declaring itself to be the inviolable border of the great Quizzlevanian nation. We would rather see a fence or a wall with border guards and protocols for crossing the border. We would also like to hear the people contained within such borders, uniformly speaking, standard high quizzle and saluting the Quizzlevanian flag as one. Making these true would ground Quizzlevania more firmly in reality and finally convince us that this Quizzlevania thing really exists. But can we go on to declare Quizzlevania to be the land of the deregulated home of the stout-hearted, to have a national interest, and to have been made for you and me? Remember, last week we talked about lack as the terror of not being real and the consequent impulse of people to take measures to ground themselves in reality, to convince themselves that they are really real. This would seem to be the same thing. When the nation reverts to a mere concept, we try to shore up the nation thing. When the self reverts to mere concept, we try to shore up the thing self. Buddhist practice takes us, in all its radicalness, in the opposite direction. We don't shore up the thing-self or try to ground it in reality. Rather, we intentionally undermine and deconstruct the thing-self to recognize it for what it is, not just intellectually, but at a deep experiential and perceptual level, as an empty concept. This goes against the stream of the untutored worldling. Why? So we don't do anything stupid. 
The practice of non-self is to remind ourselves to quit reifying our concept self, to avoid constructing the thing self that gets us into so much trouble and upon which the ego self is built, which is ultimately the source of the human dilemma of our stuckedness in samsara, of our sense of lack. There are some metaphysical presumptions associated with the thing-self, though this may go unnoticed, since the existence of a thing-self is routinely assumed as a matter of common sense. The presumptions are that there are objects that really exist from their own side that is independent of our experience of them. Secondly, that the thing-self is one such object. Thirdly, that the thing-self enters into relations with other objects which affect the qualities of the objects involved, including their existence. In particular, we are convinced that there is a world out there that is much more substantial and reliable than turns out to be the case. We're convinced it exists independent of our own minds, that its objects are permanent or relatively fixed, until one object acts on another, in a kind of billiard ball model of reality. We are also convinced that what we experience as real is real and accurately reflects how the world is before we experience it. There are practices in Buddhism that undermine these notions. Most prevalent is simply to bear in mind the three signs impermanence, suffering, and not-self in our experience of the world. In this way, we tend to see the world as fluid, highly contingent, always changing, unreliable, without a fixed self at the center, and as subject to suffering wherever we let the thing-self re-emerge in a world of change. Moreover, the practice of attentive observation in accord with the Dharma, taught as Satipatthana, is primarily concerned with deconstructing the thing-self. I just gave a long series of talks on Satipatthana, focusing on the practice of internal analysis at the heart of the Satipatthana in this regard. I will briefly summarize the relevance of the Satipatthana to undermining the thing-self in a couple of weeks. So, let's turn for the rest of today's talks to our other ongoing story concerned with how the self has been conceptualized in Western thought. People pretty much consistently endorse a thing-self throughout the world. It's the Buddha's rather unique innovation to challenge the substantial existence of a thing-self. But the ego-self comes in all shapes and sizes and is very much under the influence of cultural trends. Many scholars have pointed to a quite remarkable evolution of the ego-self in European history from the Middle Ages to the present that has led us through a series of stages, one conditioned by the one before. These stages are medieval society, before these changes happened, then the Protestant Reformation, then the European Enlightenment, then European Romanticism, 
and then various modern expressions bringing us up to the present. In medieval society, as I understand it, religious life was not very distinguishable from everyday community life. God was everywhere. Life was full of ritual. There was, however, an encouragement of introspection and individual transformation. The convention of private compulsory confession can be seen in this light. Also, the flourishing of a monastic community. Faith in material progress, forward thinking toward a better future, developed during this period in preparation for the second coming. It should be noticed that there was a lot of political tension between the church, based hierarchically in Rome, and temporal authorities like kings and rulers of local fiefdoms. Tension resolved in different ways at different times, sometimes with temporal rulers appointing local bishops and so on. Charlemagne appointed the Pope, for instance. Often, temporal authority was considered to have been granted by God, divine right of kings, and so on. At other times, the Pope and the Church dominated. The Protestant Reformation is marked most famously with Luther's posting his 95 Theses on a church door in 1517 as a response to his perceived corruption in the Catholic Church. Protestantism seems initially to have been a radical rejection of religious institutions. Any sacred dimension of this material world of ritual, priests, monks, any religious authority. Protestantism initially got rid of them all. The new atheists have a lot to thank Luther for. However, what it left was a God far above it all and a priesthood of all believers below, in which the individual was endowed with personal spirituality and a direct connection to God. Faith was all-important, and Luther also famously translated the Bible, previously only available in Latin, into a widely comprehensible language, so that common people would have direct access to its message without the help of the priests. The Thirty Years' War followed in the following century. It's often described as a religious war, but from what I understand, it had largely to do with the political tension between spiritual and temporal authority and between competing temporal rulers. The Protestant movement was supported by temporal rulers because it diminished the power of the church. It has been pointed out that Protestants often fought against Protestants and Catholics against Catholics, and in fact, the last half of the war only Catholics were fighting against other Catholics. The European Enlightenment elevated human reason. René Descartes said famously, I think, therefore I am. This addresses the suspected groundlessness of the thing-self by attempting to equate the self with the individual capacity for human reason. This is not considered to be a valid inference in Buddhism any more than 
It has an economy, therefore Quisylvania exists. The European Enlightenment enhanced the endowment of the individual self to include reasoning. The Cartesian self could rely on its own judgment and standards independent of the social environment. This stage gave rise to modern science, which had its roots in the supposition that God operates a lawful universe and that human reasoning can comprehend those laws. Science had its tiffs with the church, but by and large, early science was regarded as a religious project, something like looking into the mind of God. Since God was far removed from the everyday world after the Protestant Reformation, the idea of the great clockmaker arose, whereby God set our mundane world in motion, but generally does not interfere with its operation. European Romanticism is a response to the spiritless and dehumanizing effects of the Enlightenment, adding an emotional and aesthetic dimension to cold reasoning from the end of the 18th century to about the middle of the 19th. It's found in people like Rousseau, Schiller, Schleiermacher, representing the idea of human thought free from social constraints, of individual morality and wisdom coming directly from the human heart of naturalness. Rousseau, for instance, declared that people were inherently good, but were made wicked by social institutions. The outflow of the inner self is often taken up in the art of the Romantic era. Wordsworth, for instance, stated that all good poetry is the spontaneous outflow of powerful feelings. Romantic themes can be traced forward through psychoanalysis, the American transcendentalist movement, then later entered the American countercultural movements of the middle 20th century. We notice in this historical progression of Western thought how much of it seems common sense, probably to most listeners. But this is entirely an idiosyncratic development unique to the West. We do not find it in Asian Buddhist cultures, for instance. We also notice a tension between individual and society in this development, generally in favor of the individual. We also notice a progressive unfolding of the nature of the self. Next week, I will contrast this self with the Buddhist self, the one we hope to get rid of.